welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. And welcome back to the Brain Tools Podcast, practical brain science for everyday people. Really, really excited about the episode we have for you this week. It's all about emotional regulation, understanding how to regulate emotions in your brain, how they work and what you can do uh, to not be so impacted by emotions throughout your day or to understand how they work. So this is this is a one that has been highly requested say that every week, but this time it actually has been highly requested by lots of people. I always get asked, you know, how do you manage my emotions? How do I, how do I manage anger, stress, frustration, etc.? So excited about this topic and excited to have Kieran here with me today. How are you doing, Kieran? I am delightful. I mean, Chrissy around the corner, okay, a couple yes. of weeks from now, we always say that. He's gone quote unquote quickly, but it really hasn't. And look, mm. going on leave soon. It's going to be nice. I'm going to play some golf. It'd be great. Look at you, Joe. You're going to uh, take some time off. <laughs> yeah, Got to take that time off and obviously just, you know, attempt to play golf. It'd yeah. be horrific, as you know, latest hobby. But how are you? How are you doing? Look, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Gearing up for the Christmas period as pretty much everyone's doing, stressing about uh, getting my Christmas shopping done, which is always left to the last minute because, you know, constraints breed creativity. So let's just use that here. Hold on. Is, do, do, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that your tagline? Constraints lead to creativity. It's actually fair, though. Right? Right? It is very fair. Innovation by necessity. Oh, I like that. I like that. I like, you know, another one I really like, and I think it applies really well to today's topic, is the ability to stay calm in an argument is a superpower. I think I think it's a really strong statement because the, the ability to regulate your emotions um, and to really understand how they work so you can regulate them gives you this flexibility, this emotional flexibility and agility in a whole bunch of situations which can really help how you – it really impact how you communicate with other people. Um, which is super powerful. And I know personally for myself, I've had lots of instances where I've been deregulated emotionally and uh, perhaps perhaps the way I behaved and acted wasn't in line with, with what I wanted. So I, I've felt it personally. What about yourself? Sam, this episode can't come at a better time. I, uh, I've been a bad boy. I've been a bad boy. Oh, no. You are a naughty boy. Oh, no. Don't you dare take that out of context. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've got a... I've got a can I tell you a quick story? Just out from the yes, weekend. Yes, Okay. I'm really not proud of this one, but I feel like it's very important to tell you and to basically get your counsel on this. But uh, as you know, I've been playing a fair bit of golf recently. I uh, just got into it because it's the only thing that we can really do anyway. Uh, and I was playing with uh, a bunch of mates uh, over the weekend and... We were basically uh, started to play nine holes, you know, just uh, giving it a good crack. And then what happened is we basically were stuck behind a group of, you know, four people for the entire day. And it was getting really frustrating. You could see a few of us, our temperaments were being tested uh, lightly. Uh, and we were waiting literally five, ten minutes before we would start each hole. Game, that was the reason why we, we scored terribly, obviously. We then got to the, the seventh hole and um, we were after waiting for so long. And what basically happens is we had a marshal come up to us and you could clearly see this marshal had been not having a great day but comes up to us starts giving us an absolute earful saying we are slow and we are holding everyone up you can imagine we're not happy <laughs> we've been waiting the entire day and this guy's just taking pot shots at us we're like what are you talking about you can clearly see that we've tried to regulate our emotions we get a little bit passive aggressive it's not great he literally on the next tee on the whole like stares at us he's just looking at our shots now i don't know if you've ever played golf sam but if someone's staring at your shot it gets very intimidating. It gets really scary. You get really nervous. And so basically we were, we were really, really disgruntled. And so holes eight and nine, we were really annoyed. We didn't enjoy ourselves. We then get to the end 
of course, and we see the marshal when we're leaving uh, the arena, quote-unquote, uh, just there. And when we go past, a bunch of us just start taking pot shots at him, be really passive-aggressive, being like, oh, thanks so much for your, your really good nature, etc. as we go through. And we find out when we sit down later that three people have come up into his face prior to our conversation and had a go at him. Uh, for everything that's going on. He's clearly been having a bad day. He's clearly struggling. And so that came out in a different way. But um, what it showed us is that if we were able to regulate our emotions and actually see it from his point of view, we might not have been as harsh. And so I did a bad thing, Sam. I'm sorry. You you were, you did do a bit of a bad thing, but the bad thing led to a good example of just, just what happens when, you know, emotional regulation goes wrong. Yeah, nothing good comes from it. Nothing good. Okay, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Not not a lot of good things come from it. And I'm uh, I'm reminded by a quote uh, by Lao Tzu, uh, where says, "He or she who conquers others is strong. He or she who conquers themselves is mighty." And I think that's uh, the the crux of today's episode, which is, hey, Mm -hmm. focus inwardly, locus of control, and your emotions. Totally agree. And uh, philosophy with Kieran, as always. Integral to brain tools operations. Uh, oh, just, uh, I'm the biggest pseudo philosopher known ever. Yeah, I, just, I dabble in a place in like wrong era. <laughs> born in the wrong era. You need, you need to be Roman. But you um, are, you've hit the nail on the head, though, right? And I think that's the focus yeah. of today, which is you know working on how you stay calm and focused even in upsetting situations. And I think as we as we bring this in, Sam, I've got a I've got a bit of an analogy for you, which I think might set the tone quite nicely for what emotion regulation actually is. Can I give it to you? Please. It's a traffic light. Shock. <laughs> so you know when you're driving, right? Traffic lights are pretty important. When what happens, Sam, when it's green? You go fast-ish. <laughs> fast-ish, but down the side for you. Yeah, within the speed limits. What happens when it's red? Stop. Good. And orange? Slow. Slow down. That's the key thing about emotional regulation, right? Emotion regulation is your orange light. It is the thing that gets you to stop and pause and actually evaluate, hey, is this a productive emotion? If so, let's go with it. Let's go green light. If it's not a productive emotion, chuck the brakes on, stop and prop, because then the negative consequences or downstream consequences might be realized and i think these situations we find ourselves in whether it's personal you know from the idea of conflict with your partner or stressful everyday events that pop up but all the way to work like work has been a very stressful thing for so many people recently and there was a study and i know we love a study by a journal called psychology research and behavior management 2019 connecting emotion regulation to career outcomes (laughs) you know that's just been cited in a whole bunch of management classes Ring to it, doesn't it? Hey, do you do an MBA? <laughs> but basically, so sample was 400 that? people. 400 people yeah. uh, came out. A decent sample size. You'd like to think so. And they basically found that emotion regulation was correlated with improved career outcomes as it was a, a protective factor to adverse reactions you might have in the work environment. So if you spend a lot of time at work, there's a higher probability that you might have some negative uh, interactions, whether it's with clients or with colleagues. And so having that becomes really important to avoid burnout. But this was even salient in the job search. Think now. People out of jobs, people looking at actually uh, searching for jobs right now, if you can't regulate your emotions, given the ambiguity of the situation, the unknown nature of what you're at, it's very easy to give up and it's very easy to succumb to your emotions. So important both in a personal and a work setting, which I think is very interesting. Totally. And you could even extend that personal setting for job seekers into going to interviews or following up because those are really highly emotional, arousing events. So your emotions are really running hot and regulation strategies come into play. It leads really well um, into the way emotional regulation works in the brain using that kind of traffic light analogy. And it works by disrupting or distracting or altering two things. So it's not just your brain, it's your brain patterns or your body patterns. There's two components of it. Very good. What I mean by that is you you can alter your emotions or regulate your emotion emotions through altering or regulating your brain or your body. So with your brain, part of the process is disrupting or down-regulating your amygdala, which is your emotion emotional salience detector. It's the emotional radar we've talked about a couple of times and determining what you pay attention to, to because this strongly impacts then the, the downstream uh, emotional flow-on effects. 
And it's also uh, a function of activating your executive function, your thinking networks, and moving away from emotional processing uh, networks in your brain, thereby moving um, moving resources away from processing emotions towards thinking. So that's the brain side of things where you can change your brain patterns through some of the strategies we're going to talk about. But there's also the body side of things too. Oh, okay. Hit me with the body. The body one, body is one interesting because you know, we talk about, they always say, yeah. boy, this was psychosomatic. What's happened to the body? <laughs> and then that's part of a great song, by the way. Psychosomatic. <laughs> we need therapy. Uh, great band. I'm struggling to remember the name. So yeah, that's the brain side of things where you can alter your brain patterns um, through, through thinking and through certain exercises we're going to talk about a little bit later. The second side is body, which is really just using your body to send a signal to your brain that everything's okay to switch away from that sympathetic nervous system activation to parasympathetic nervous system, which controls your stress response. And there are a couple of ways you do this, but it's mostly around moving the body and forcing the brain to focus on movement and bodily function, such as your breath, rather than emotional processing. And this is really important because negative emotions can have a really big impact on our body through the the production of stress hormones, the release of stress hormones, uh, and endorphins and flow-on effects that really, really impact us. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because when you say that the idea of the body and the brain, it's it's kind of crazy to think that we've thought like even prior to maybe the last 20, 30 years that they were separate. Like you had the body yeah. and then you had the brain, and then there was no sort of connection. But in reality, the the body is an amazingly hardwired integrated system or ecosystem anyway where everything works together it's like remember when like you know you're about to play a sport um and you get really really nervous like that is a very clear body body brain sort of uh i don't want to call it connection but clearly very clear symptoms there so i like it and i think that's huge I totally agree. They work in concert too. So the work from Antonio Damasio, um, looking at the somatic somatic marker. Name, come on, Antonio. Antonio Damasio is a fantastic name. Um, <laughs> lovely, lovely human being. Great researcher, neurologist. Um, looking at the fact that sometimes uh, some of our negative emotions or the ones we experience as negative emotions manifest themselves in the body first. So there's actually signals in your body. We're looking at the conductance of the skin, um, stress responses, sweat that happen before you even process being emotionally aroused. So wow. it really is a, two, a two-way signal between body and brain and brain and body in terms of processing emotion, emotions, which is why both components play such an important role in how you regulate them. Yeah, really wouldn't want them to do that test in like Singapore where I'm a sweaty man. Like I think they think I'm the, like, the biggest nervous wreck. I'm stressed. No, man, it's just like 40 <laughs> degrees out here. Yeah, just one season doesn't work. <laughs> but I think on your point of negative emotion, I think that's that's a really important. Like I'm just thinking about it very practically right now, which is like if you, you talk about like the prefrontal cortex and your conscious thought, like if you're experiencing negative emotion and you're having a really bad day, it is incredibly difficult to concentrate. And of course, it's going to impact your performance in at a work setting, but of course, it's going to impact your well-being. But on the flip side, I think this stuff probably doesn't get enough credit just to add a little bit of color to it is positive emotions to the extreme can also be disruptive. Like if you are too happy or too excited and you can't regulate that, you stay in that um, that realm forever, you might end up like jumping to a conclusion or acting rationally as opposed to actually understanding the factors of a problem in a work setting and also in a personal setting. Uh, big shout out to the episodes previously on positive and negative emotion. But Sam, you know how I can get quite mathematical about these things. This is just simply about minimizing uh, the range between your positive and your negative emotions. You don't want to be like a roller coaster, a la Ronan Keating, you want to make sure that the difference between your high and your low is smaller so it becomes a little bit more predictable, firstly to yourself, but also to the people around you. And I think that's the key thing that we get lost in with our emotional regulation is how it impacts other people uh, as well. How it impacts other people, such as on the golf course. Uh, that's Thanks, a, man. Just a little drive-by. Thanks for reminding me. Just, like, get really vulnerable with you. Little, I'm just pulling it back up. Where's Brad uh, Brown know, when I need her? But purely because, purely because I think uh, it's just such a great example and personification of this in in practice and in the real world too, um, which is really, really important. That that concept of range is super important, I think. And the other one that is uh, worth touching on is the fact that most of us stay and dwell in emotions much longer than we need to. And Sam Harris said this. Okay. Sammy, free will. (laughs) <laughs> Sam Harris, who neuroscientist turned uh, pop culture. He's what is he like a, a popular? Intellectual. I think he's a public intellectual. 
public intellectual. That's that's what I'm looking for. But he was talking about the fact that we continually dwell and ruminate and resurrect the conditions which trigger an emotional state. So, for example, when you're anxious or when you're stressed, you continually think about the things that are making you anxious or stressed, and as a result, you continually feel anxious or stressed, which becomes this this looping effect of your experience um, and the emotional arousal that accompanies it. And I think that's a really, really valid point, especially today, because I know lots of people who will overthink a situation, uh, leading them to become anxious or stressed, and they'll keep thinking about the fact that they're anxious and stressed, making them more anxious and stressed. And this like looping effect means they get stuck in this vicious cycle of emotional arousal, which you know impacts their entire brain, their body, everything. Yeah, I think that that whole idea where you think you, you can't control that rumination as well, and you kind of think yeah. it's productive, but in reality, you basically got a fire, as you said, and you're just pouring gasoline. You're not pouring water on it, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you feel more and more emotion. Well, it's almost more like trying to blow out a big fire, and the fact that you're blowing into it is pushing more oxygen into it, making the fire grow larger. Oh, this is and like the more you blow, the bigger it gets. This is analogy porn. I'm telling you right now, yeah. this is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Put that one out. Thank you. Uh, sorry, sorry. I'm uh, regulated. Didn't didn't didn't, didn't work. But um, on your on that note, though, and I think that's really important. Is yeah. we do talk about emotions possibly in a negative light, but I think there's a few caveats here that are that are important to note. And I think the reality is, and, and we talk about this a lot. Emotions are so so important in relationships. It, it gives cues to the other person in terms of your attitudes uh, and your beliefs in them. So if you are too in control, you can actually appear quite aloof and quite self-absorbed. Like, who is this person? Do they even care about me? Particularly in a work setting. And I'll put my hand up and say I've definitely uh, experienced this before, where I, re- you know, regulate my emotions a fair bit, and people are like, "Hold on, Kieran's being really guarded. He's not letting us in. What's going on?" And I think that's a really important asterisk. I don't know how you feel about that, but that that whole idea of emotions being a crux of relationships as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I used to be, I was known for being too stoic. And I think that's part of that is actual emotional suppression on an emotional regulation scale, which definitely creates uh, like a, a, a wall between you and other people because you're not really expressing how you feel. There's also another quote from Dr. Susan David, who is the author of Emotional Agility uh, and has done a lot of work in the emotion space. And she said, it's normal to have negative thoughts and difficult emotions can act as a signpost that you need to change something. So it's that idea that negative emotions can really signify something as opposed to uh, just being uh, an experience that we try to constantly suppress or regulate. So, you know, emotions have utility. There's, if we didn't need them or didn't rely on them at some stage, we wouldn't evolve to have them quite simply. Well, I'm reading a book called Life 3.0 at the moment all about artificial intelligence. I mean, like, you know, we're not robots. We're not robots. And I think the, the, the thing here as well is like, you know, the whole idea of the gut feeling, right, and making a decision. Like, if you don't allow that sometimes to be factored into your decision-making process, you might actually make the wrong one. And I think for both of you and I who are people that, you know, are probably higher in emotion regulation and there again are good things and bad things that come with it. One of the downstream negative consequences are that we can have heightened emotional pressure, you and I, which is we can build up across time if we don't speak about it and then it ends up being a much bigger deal than it would otherwise because we feel the need to regulate the emotions to be consistent um, with that identity. But yeah, just a few caveats because I don't want to just keep like bashing emotion. It's definitely not what we want to do. We are we are not bashing emotions. Emotions are, you know, helpful. And they're the reason we're able to connect with other people. And I think importantly to touch on is the fact that we can consciously regulate our emotions. And there are various scientifically studied ways to do so in the moment over time, um, which we're going to come to in the next section on Brain Talks. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we are here. We are in the Brain Tools section of the Brain Tools podcast where we want to give you some practical tips to help you with your emotion regulation. Now, Sam, you know how much we love the Stoics, so we've got to, okay. we've got to, we've got to set the scene in terms of what the Stoics would think. And uh, there is that, that mate called Seneca, and he said a very, very interesting quote, a very nice quote, which is, man is affected by events, but, but not by events, but by the view that they take of them. 
And I think this is going to be the real vignette we go through for all these tools is how you actually train or re-alter or rejig your perception of events. And it's all about focusing on your internal locus of control. And that's what we're going to do today. Love it. Perception is reality. Our perception is reality. Really aligns uh, with the psychology side of things too with famed researcher Albert Ellis once said, you don't get frustrated because of events. You get frustrated because of your beliefs, mm-hmm. which I think really resonates and leads well into, my, in my opinion, the granddaddy of all emotional regulation tools, the one I use the most personally. I discovered before even knowing that it was a thing. And that's cognitive reappraisal. Oh, okay, okay. I'm leaning in. I think we've, we've mentioned this a few times, but we haven't really gone have, into detail. So we haven't walk me through it. What's the tool? Really simply, in one sentence, cognitive reappraisal is reframing the way you see a situation, the stress, the anger, the emotional arousal that comes with it, so that you see the light side of it, the benefits, the positive, and therefore feel less stressed, frustrated, angry, anxiety. So the definition is basically changing the way one thinks about potentially emotionally eliciting events. So reframing, and it's a way you change how you look at something and thus change the way you experience it. It turns stressful events into either highly traumatic or challenging things or turns stressful events into things that make you uh, appreciate life or make you appreciate a situation uh, for its silver lining. So it's really about recognizing difficult emotions and thoughts and then realizing that you like to change them, and so you reframe the situation. Very, very interesting. So it's basically, you know, you can't control the event. You can't control the stimulus. What you can, though, do is reframe, as you're saying, your perception of it and your attitude towards it. So hence cognitive reappraisal. And and really reframe where you're putting your attention, you know? Like Uh, there's so many different things you can think about with a single event. Like uh, me losing my phone, I could think about losing my phone. I could think about people grabbing my data. I could think about people, people accessing people my, my data. <laughs> all this, all this stuff. Surveillance or, capitalism. I'm just joking. Or I could think about the fact that I hated that phone and that there was no good information on it whatsoever. I just wiped it recently and I was actually due for a new one. And now that I get this insurance money, this cash, I can get a better phone. So, you know, there's so many different things to pay to attention to in a situation. And cognitive reframing is about looking for the ones that, you know, alter that your emotional experience of said situation. Yeah, as we always say, you are what you pay attention to. And so now I'm intrigued. Clearly, I could have used this over the weekend. Why should I, why should I use it? <laughs> why should I use it? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. So it is possibly one of the most researched and most effective emotional regulation strategies. Um, almost all the big names in the emotional regulation space talk about cognitive reframing, and it's also very well studied. It actually helps you change your brain. So in the moment. It helps you um, regulate the experience of certain negative emotions, uh, but also over time it teaches you to reframe situations so you experience less of those negative emotions or less intensely as a result of your ability to reframe them. And there are dozens of studies. Just here are some of the, the benefits. So experimental studies, studies have shown that reappraisal leads to decreased levels of negative emotion experience and increased positive emotion experience. And there are maybe 14, 15. Oh, look at the right. There's, 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 there's a long list here. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a lot. But, hey, decreased negative emotion, increased positive. I like it. You can't really complain too much about that. I mean, that's that's what we want. Uh, also leads to lesser activation in the emotion-generative brain regions, such as the amygdala um, and the insula. So you're really teaching your brain to move away from emotional processing and towards thinking, helping you think more clearly. And people who reappraise report having better relationships and their friends agree. So there's quite a bit of uh, research out there that shows people who are good at cognitive reframing and reappraisal have better relationships and people view them as kinder in general. So lots of amazing benefits of it. Hey, talk about taglines. And I think that last one's so interesting because, you know, the yeah. fact that friends agree is that, like, you can feel inside that you're doing it, but then getting that validation that, hey, wow, it actually is increasing, um, I don't want to say the effectiveness, but the enjoyment of the relationship, the purpose of the relationship totally. as well. Absolutely. And it just, the fact that it has an impact on other people as well as yourself means it's really like a, a double whammy in terms of why you'd want to use it. Double whammy. <laughs> I really like it. 
Huge. Well, now I'm thinking, okay, because I'm just thinking the reason I'm stopping and propping is like, I'm trying to apply this to my life, right? And I'm sitting there being like, okay, I get why. Um, I'm going to use it. How do I do it? <laughs> yeah. That's the big one, right? That's the big one, the next one. So the way you implement it is really, really simple. I'll give you three steps. The first is you've got to catch the thoughts, large or small, and the feelings, right? So the first step is to notice you're having a negative uh, experience or you're having experiencing these negative emotions as a result of something. For example, with a day and the golf day in particular, let's use that as the case study. You, you'd be noticing like, oh, hey, we are feeling quite stressed and frustrated as a result of our interaction with this marshal. And that's the first stage is to acknowledge and notice that because if you don't look look for those negative emotions, you can't apply this. You can't apply what, what the cognitive reframe would be. The second is to find a new way to look at the situation, especially new ways that the situation might have benefited you or that might have had an element that you can appreciate. So, for example, again, with the golf case study, <laughs> maybe, maybe you looked at that situation and gone, okay, um, we've just received a spray from this marshal. I wonder what's happened in his day. I wonder how we can cheer him up a little bit. Like there's definitely a signal there that there's something gone wrong in an in interaction with us or with someone else. So I wonder how we can improve this situation. And rather than looking to yell at him, you maybe look to make him laugh. And the third steps turn this negative into a positive. So three steps. They, they work very, very well. I think that's the thing at the time, right? Like it, it's this seems like such a good tool in the moment, but also to train across mm. time as well when you sort of reflect upon your day and, and so on. So I like it. And just a, a little comment. This is like really interesting. I know we're talking from like negative to positive, but this reminds me so much of sports people and their interviews after yeah. when they've just won a game and they'd like say, oh, we're just taking it a game at a time. You know, it's a good win, yep. but uh, we want to move on. It's always like they're reappraising so they don't get too high. So they are, you know, get somewhere in the middle as well, which is interesting. Yeah, that's, that's so valid as well. I mean, because it kind of applies to all emotions, all experiences. It's really about teaching yourself to look at things in a new way so that they impact you negatively less, whether that's for in terms of, you know, overconfidence or in terms of stressful um, interpretation of a situation. So, yeah, I think that's it. Brain tool number one is uh, cognitive reappraisal. Oh, that's a, that is a strong, strong, strong start. It's a strong, it's a strong which, start. Which leads me to me. Brain tool number two, which is journaling slash expressive mm. writing. Love it. This is this is one I've used, so I'd love to hear a bit more about it. Tell me, uh, what is it? What is journaling slash expressive writing? Yeah, it's a good good question. And I think it, it sort of leads really nicely from uh, a connection to the cognitive reappraisal. In reality, what it is is cognitive reappraisal, but writing and documenting it down. So it's actually documenting mm -hmm. your past experiences through a, a structured or a semi-structured format, but with a very core purpose in mind is to understand the root causes of your feelings. It's about differentiating between signal and noise or symptom and disease. And I think Anne Frank, uh, March 16, 1944, some time ago, said uh, the following, uh, which is the brightest spot of all, is that at least I can write down all my thoughts and feelings, otherwise I'd absolutely suffocate. And journaling is used as a means to get all that's in your head to avoid that depressive rumination we've spoken about before to then look at your feelings on paper and to evaluate what they are as opposed to what you think they are, if that makes sense. Mm, okay. I like it. So it's, yeah, really applying that cognitive reappraisal, putting it on paper and it kind of extracting the information out of your head so that it's no longer rattling around in that brain of yours and putting on a piece of paper so you can look at it a little bit more objectively. Yeah, spot on. And I think that that's backed up by a dude called Matthew Lieberman, who was a psychologist at the University of California. Um, and it's funny, like, they coined this the Bridget Jones effect. Have you watched Bridget Jones' Zara? Oh, we were just talking about Hugh Grant. Oh, yeah, Love Actually season. It's Love Actually season. That's right. <laughs> I've seen the old Bridget Jones. Oh, so good. I've watched it Great. a number of times. Great. but. They basically discovered what they like to call the Bridget Jones effect. And what they were basically saying here, and again, I, I'm not going to lie, I still don't really understand the link of why they've called the Bridget Jones effect because it doesn't make any sense, but that's what it's called. And it's it basically worked whether people elaborated on their feelings in a diary, they penned lines of poetry, or even jotted down a song um, to express their negative emotions. And how they did this in a study perspective, is they actually invited volunteers to a lab for a brain scan before asking them to write down for 20 minutes for four consecutive days. 
half the participants mm-hmm. actually just wrote about a recent emotional experience. So it was quite emotion-laden, while the other half worried about a very neutral experience, quite semantic, like what was your day like and so on and so forth. And what was incredibly interesting is the following. Those who wrote an emotional experience showed more activity in a part of the brain called the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, which is basically where we process a bunch of emotions and where emotion regulation is quite heightened, which in turn dampened the neural activity in response to strong emotional feelings. And it had a very similar, not the same, a similar effect to when people were regulating their emotions consciously. And that's fascinating, right? Which is we talk about cognitive reappraisal, really important, but having a similar effect when you do write it down, which explains why some of the greatest writers who went through a fair bit of uh, hardship use that as their means to get it all out of their system, so to speak. Yeah, and super interesting that uh, you see those ROIs, those regions of interest in the brain being activated that are totally tied into uh, emotional regulation and the way we process just by writing. So, I, I mean, thought you were going down the ROI part of like return on investment. Uh, I was like, <laughs> no, the return on investment right. journaling is high. <laughs> ROI on emotional, the emotional ROI is pretty good. I think we're going to look at at least three or four times investment uh, <laughs> impact. So the question is like, we know journaling's really, really beneficial. We we kind of, we understand what it is. It's the question is like, how and why does it work? Do many people really use it? Because I know sometimes a lot of people like, like to virtue signal about their journaling practice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, hey here is my five-minute journaling technique that I use every uh, single day. Hey, yeah, yeah. And power to them. If it works for them, it power works for them, them right? Uh, we're not here to take shots. But uh, there's a person called Anne, Anne Law uh, Le Kumpf. I can't really pronounce her name very well, but she is awesome. I just recently discovered her Twitter page, Nest Labs, all about metacognition and, like, basically neuroscience-based uh, learning. And she actually did a poll with her her subscribers and she basically found that 41% of her subscribers, again, just a representative sample here, um, actually did the journaling. So it's less than obviously half. And then 21% actually used to do it and 38% never kept one. So go check out the blog. I think it's a very, really interesting one, but there's clearly a disconnect between uh, people understanding what journaling is, people knowing the benefits of journaling and actually doing it, which is the classic behavioral change conundrum. And so there are a few hypotheses as to how it works. I'm just going to run two past you, Sam, because, again, when it comes to conjecture, we don't want to go into that realm necessarily because it's out of our, our pay grade. But I think one hypothesis of journaling is that research actually suggests that confronting old emotions may reduce physiological stress, right, which is the actual, you know, we talked about the link between the body and the mind. But one thing that I think becomes really clear is exposure theory. We've spoken about this so many times. Mm -hmm. Expose yourself to the negative situations over and over again, relive them, and that can be very clear. But writing on a regular basis might actually get us to repeat our exposure to old memories, and that then can actually get rid of the emotional response we go through. And that's very clear. You need to understand the cause and effect relationship between what you feel and what has actually happened. Uh, and that connection becomes really, really clear as a bit of a hypothesis. Again, people don't really know why it works and the mechanism, as we do with a lot of neuroscience, but that's uh, that's what's posited. That's really fascinating. It actually ties into some of the very primitive uh, neuroscience understanding of psychotherapy and the concept of reaccessing old memories and then kind of rewriting them because every time you access a memory, it's more like a sketch of a sketch and you you color it with the context of how you experience it in that moment. So this idea of like writing things down, getting that exposure therapy to to these thoughts and emotions by writing them down, but then also maybe slightly altering the way you perceive that that past memory for more of a positive spin, for more of a cognitive reframe, um, could also be playing a role. But like like you said, this is not actually validated in science. So let's let's <laughs> move away from well, um, we're distancing ourselves. <laughs> so yes, yes, there's, there's socially distancing quite responsible of us from uh, the lack of research. Cool. So, I mean, it sounds like journaling has a really amazing impact. Um, there's a couple of theories about why. How do you implement it? Because I know lots of people out there specifically have tried journaling. They do it for three days. They do it for a week, and then they kind of give up. What's the best strategy? Yeah, it can. So, I reckon, I think the, the thing about, like, journaling, it's like any sort of habit, right? We've spoken about habit formation. Shout out to um, episode four and five on habits and negative mm-hmm. habits. Um, but I think the key action here from a self perspective is to keep a daily journal. Now, I think a lot of people, when they talk about journaling, they think, oh, go back to the emotional experience and get really heavy in it. In reality, it can just be simply documenting your day. 
So you do it at the end of your day. You make sure it's in your calendar, you time block. Here's the five, 10 minutes that is dedicated to reflecting upon my day. And you don't necessarily have to write it. While writing might be uh, better than quote-unquote typing, you might want to actually do voice memos, a la Lewis Lit from Suits, or you might want to actually do vlogging as a way of doing it as well. So it's about a daily practice to reflect upon your day. So I've got two options, Sam. I'm going to run past you from a, a practical standpoint. Right. You ready? Yeah, what's the two options? So option one, I think there's many different frameworks out there, but I personally like the plus minus next journaling method. So plus minus next. Now there's also the bullet journal movement by Ryder Carroll. Hey, could you have your bullet journal? Have you ordered it? (laughs) Five minute journal. (laughs) Exactly. But I think it's really simple questions. What went well today? What didn't go well today? And what are your goals for tomorrow? And you start to realize that in there, these are surface level questions that are not asking what was your heightened emotional experience today? (laughs) What was your biggest negative emotion and your biggest positive emotion? It's actually using a framework to say, hey, let's talk about the semantics of a day. And then there might be a cascade to deep dive into some of the emotions that you felt then and there. And it's five minutes tops. You can do it on transit on the way home while you're typing into your phone, if you like, in a journal perspective, or you can write it down. So that's option number one. Option number two, very, very quickly, is to get creative, right? Write a story about your day. Right? It suits people who actually like to write. Write a poem, a haiku. Sam and I have done this together before. It's very romantic. Write a song or keep an online blog that people have. As long as you've got a, a, an outlet to do so, it can be structured in the first way or it can be very loosely structured. It doesn't matter which way you go about it. And that, my friend, wraps up the good old journaling method. Journaling method. I mean, it's something I've done personally. That's something I know you've done a little bit of journaling and can attest to its effectiveness uh, for myself. There's one one little strategy I, I don't think we've talked about before, but that I found really useful. And it was the idea of just writing a single line of journal a day to build that mm. practice initially. I would just I would just write one sentence for how my day went. And I found that, you know, over time I could build a bit of momentum. But yeah, it's such a strong brain tool. That is amazing, right? It's a small, like what's the smallest action that you can take around it? I think that's a really yeah. good tip. Really nice. Baby steps in the uh, BJ Fogg behavioral change model. Anyway, super nerdy. We, uh, we might take a quick break and come back with the last two brain tools. And welcome back to the very last section of this Brain Tools podcast episode on emotional regulation. This is next section is the last two Brain Tools. Uh, so the next one I'm going to talk about is Brain Tool number three, physical stress as a circuit breaker. Oh, you just said circuit breaker and everyone here in Singapore is going to be like, ah, oh, we went through that for three months. What's going on? So Samuel, you need to explain yourself. What is this? <laughs> I, I, I do need to explain myself. I don't see, I do that physical stress, which is, you know, basically movement exercise, something that makes you sweat, stresses your body physically, distracts away from mental stress. It moves away processing in your brain away from uh, emotional events and arousal to uh, my body is doing something intense. I need to support that. And as a result, it acts as this like emotional circuit breaker, especially in the moment. Oh, I like this. So this relationship again between the physical and the mental are clearly coming up. Why should somebody use this? It's really simple. And I, I kind of touched on it just then, but it's because exercise in the moment disrupts your emotional processing. And it also releases a whole host of feel-good neurotransmitters which are correlated with improvements of mood, uh, such as endorphins, endocannabinoids, serotonin, and helps you process um, your cortisol and adrenaline that are released when you're stressed. You know, that's part of the stress response is the release of glucocorticoids, cortisol, um, endorphins, norepinephrine, et cetera. And when you exercise or when you put yourself in physical stress, your body breaks these down in, in your muscles. So therefore it helps mitigate the emotional reactions. Um, yeah. No, I like it. The reason, the thing that's popping into my head, just FYI, um, very, very quickly, is there was a, a Twitter thread that was like, what is one thing that you'd want every person in the world to do for 30 minutes uh, that would make the world a better place? And the number one response was always exercise. It was always, if you like, you could get every single person in the world to actually exercise for 20 to 30 minutes a day, the world would be a much better place. And this emotion regulation clearly uh, is, a, is a link, which I really like. 
100%. There's also like the, the flow and effects of increased uh, blood, flow, blood flow in the brain, therefore helping you uh, clean out um, some brain, brain and keep that really healthy. Uh, and the three most consistent cognitive uh, effects being that a single bout of exercise improves executive function, enhances mood states, and decreases stress. So if everyone exercised, we'd all probably be a little bit happier, a little bit more clear in terms of the way we thought, um, and less stressed. I absolutely love it. And I think this now becomes the, we've spoken about the slide before, but I feel like you've got some very nice twists on this. How do you actually go about implementing it and, you know, how does it work? Absolutely. So the way it works is, as I touched on, shifting your brain's activation patterns to, to movement and to the processing of your limbs and your muscles and your joints um, as opposed to focusing on whatever emotional event you are. I'll give you an example. When you're sprinting up a hill, it's pretty hard to think about how anxious you are about a meeting tomorrow because you're too focused on taking that next step forwards or doing whatever exercise it may be. Um, how we implement this is really, really simple. This is for in the moment when you are completely deregulated, when you're anxious, when you're stressed, when you're frustrated or just feeling um, some sort of way is to go and make yourself sweat a tiny bit. I don't know, you might be saying, oh, but I'm always stressed at work. I mean, you don't have to swear. I'm not telling you to pour it out, but a 30-second wall squat or maybe some push-ups or some squats on the spot, anything that causes you to focus on moving your body in a way that is a little bit difficult will uh, activate this, this impact of acute exercise and the improvements in move and emotional regulation. And you'll find afterwards, you go and do 30 squats after you've been really stressed post-meeting. It almost feels like this this wave just rushes through you, and that's the endorphins and endocannabinoids and the processing of stress, and you just feel clearer. Oh, I'm so with you. I went for a run for the first time in a couple of weeks. I've been very bad recently, uh, and yeah, yeah I, I felt that high. And the work I was able to do after so clear headed, everything was coming quite easy. Like it was just easier, yeah. right? Life was easier. So I'll even give you a quick example in my own personal life when I have a really stressful meeting or there's something coming up, and I'm just. I'm feeling it a little bit. I'm a little bit deregulated. I'll go shoot hoops. I'll go play basketball for 10, 15 minutes. And focusing on that, I come back in and it's it's a reset button. My, my stress response has been broken, circuit broken, and I'm ready to go again. So that's brain tool number three, which is in the moment, use physical stress to distract mental stress as your emotional circuit breaker. Yeah, I, I love that one. I think, you know, one thing that might probably go against you shooting hoops is the fact that Clay Thompson is obviously out for the season. I just uh, want to let you know that again. Sorry. Like, well, I just, want to, just, I just, okay. Sam and I are very much into NBA and he goes for Golden State, who I hate, and I just go for LeBron. And so what's very funny for those that don't have basketball context is I just gave uh, Sam a big dig there and he's not happy with me. That's the long and short of what you need to know. <laughs> I think I need to go do some uh, physical acute exercise right now. <laughs> very, very nice, my friend. And that brings us to the last brain tool here, which is brain tool number four, mindfulness meditation. Mm, okay. I mean, this is one often talked about, but like what, what really is it? What yeah. really is mindfulness? It's a super question because, again, it's it's literally, you know, ravaged through Silicon Valley. If you don't meditate, <laughs> you are in the minority as opposed to the majority. No, and, no, hang on. If you, don't, if you don't say you meditate on Twitter. Ah, very, very, very good. Very, very good. Got to talk about it more than you do it. Um, so I, I suppose meditation from its strictest sense, it, it's defined as a form of mental training. And the aim is really simple in that it's actually aim is to improve an individual's core psychological capacities, such as attentional and emotion self-regulation. So, hey, how do I process those emotions on the spot and what do I pay attention to? Which is really interesting links to, as we've spoken about, cognitive behavioral therapy, journaling, and obviously the physical stress we've gone through. And it stemmed from Buddhist meditation traditions, mindfulness and equanimity great word which means composure under pressure and it looks to regulate your emotions or your attention in the present rather than the past and the future so the ones we've spoken about generally outside of cognitive reappraisal and physical stress journaling is all about the past generally speaking this is now about the present moment itself one thing i want to run past you which i found fascinating is the number of randomized controlled trials the, the gold standard of clinical studies for mindfulness how many th- how many do you think were conducted between like 1995 and 97, so like 20 years ago, how many experiments around mindfulness oh, meditation? Probably like three to four. It just wasn't even on the map then. It wasn't on the map. And like, again, double it slightly, there was 10. But I want to ask you the question now. So it's only 10. 
2013 to 2015, that period, how many do you think were actually done? Well, I mean, let's just, let's say double it. 40, 50? 216. Yeah, okay. 216, yeah. 20x in terms of the research around this, which I think is absolutely crazy. And one thing that's come out recently to, to bring this together is Sarah DeBoard's research at Harvard. She uses fMRI, again, functional magnetic resonance imaging, just to look at pictures of the brain. And what's really interesting about this, which I didn't know, that's why I wanted to share this with you, which I thought you would like, is that she mm. found that meditation or con consistent practice impacts your everyday emotional regulation, not just your emotion regulation in the moment to fearful or stressful stimuli. So when you actually detect and actually image the brains, this is where the very famous monk study was. If you look at monk's brain and you look at the amount of grey matter in their brain around those emotion regulation regions, it's so much more increased than those that haven't actually trained, which I found fascinating. The impact on the everyday emotion regulation is very, very pronounced. So there's a longitudinal impact of meditating both in the moment and then over time because you're changing your brain. Hence the mental training, which I find absolutely fascinating. It's huge. So how does that work? Like in terms of that changing of the, the brain for the layman out there who's like, all right, that's cool. I'd love to change my brain with meditation, but what actually happens? Yeah, it's super. So when we talk about gray matter increasing, this is all about the connectivity of the brain. And so there can be three types of change that happen in the brain. Chemical, from the neurotransmitters that Sam was speaking about in terms of, you know, we talk about dopamine, we talk about serotonin, all that stuff. Structural, which is obviously within the brain itself, and functional in terms of the actual capacity for it to do its job. And so the mode here that all I want to just touch on, we talked about attentional control and emotional regulation. Basically, the two areas of the brain associated with that, anterior cingulate cortex and striatum, that's all about goal-directed behavior. That increases in gray matter. It's correlated, I'm mindful. And the prefrontal cortex, all about decision-making and emotion regulation, that has also increases as well. And this, I think, is really interesting that if you map, Sam, a graph from people who are early meditators all the way to advanced stage, the amount of effort required to meditate decreases as your experience grows. That kind of makes sense, though. But from meditation, you go from effortful doing, this is really hard, all the way to effortless being, which I think is huge. It makes a lot of sense. So there's a little bit of a pause there. That was a microphone issue. I'm thinking of meditation as a skill uh, compared to a sport or something you do. The, the more you do, the easier it gets at doing it um, because your brain becomes more adept. So uh, how, do you, how do you implement meditation for all those out there who have tried and failed, of which I know there are a lot of people? So we'll go it's, – it's a very, very good point because, again, people try and meditate for 30 days in a row or 60 days in a row. As Sam said, BJ Fogg, you know, baby steps. I think the easiest way to go about this is to download meditation apps. So Headspace is now a unicorn, Waking Up With Sam Harris or Calm. They're all guided meditation apps that walk you through five to 10-minute exercises. And it's even as low as three minutes. So what I'd recommend, download those apps, and then you can actually work through because it's got gamification in it as well. Um, I looked at the Headspace app, and apparently I've meditated now for about 2,000-odd minutes for the year. Um, and I think you, you start to get on these hot streaks, you start to be, um, and you start to notice the very tangible difference. My real big tip here, though, is do it before you go to bed. Because if you do it before you go to bed, at worst, you have the best sleep, right? You fall asleep and you sleep well. At best, you also fall asleep well, but you also fine-tune your emotional regulation guitar. And a guitar will never sound great if it's not in tune. So that would be like the minimum step that I take. If you want to take it 10x and you want to take a, a page out of Naval, something that I'm doing right now, you level up 60 minutes a day for 60 minutes. 60, 60 minutes a day for 60 days, you sit there, and you just see what happens. There's no stimulation. There's no nothing. And it's so interesting that when you get to your board for 30 minutes and then these weird things from your past and these weird thoughts pop up around minutes of 40 to 50 and you're sitting there being like, where were these things? This dormant subconscious coming to light. So I reckon the apps are the way to go. Um, but as we speak about, Sam, we've got a very interesting episode that will come after this, which is all about implementing in work and relationships and other aspects of your life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay from the self for now and then we'll, uh, we'll get to that when listeners can tune in after that. I love it. Uh, building up uh, the, the pyramid exposure uh, theory. Almost. <laughs> the pyramid exposure uh, theory. Whenever you say that, uh, like, now I literally have PTSD. Uh, I'm like, why on earth did I yeah. do that? <laughs> you need to emotionally regulate. Yeah, it's really strong. I mean, meditation is it's so well researched. That's the thing. It's completely validated. 
there's a reason everyone talks about it and it's because the body of research behind it in terms of scientific validation is ridiculous and only grows day by day. Should we uh, go back and wrap up those four brain tools for everyone? Let's do it. Sam, you start. Let's go. So brain tool number one was cognitive reappraisal and that is looking at a situation in a different light so that you stop focusing on the uh, event in a way that causes you to feel negative emotions and focus on the event in a way that gives you positive emotions and makes you a little bit more grateful for what has happened. Brain tool Love one. it. Brain tool number two, which uh, piggybacks off cognitive reappraisal, is journaling slash expressive writing. It's all about documenting your past experiences, staring them in the face and getting what's in your head onto paper on a consistent basis so you can evaluate not the, not the, not the effect but the cause of these negative emotions and positive emotions that you experience. So brain tool number two, journaling slash expressive writing. Love that. Brain tool number three is more for in the moment and it's using physical physical stress as an emotional circuit breaker for mental stress. Do something that makes you sweat, makes you work a little bit, put some tension in your muscles when you're feeling stressed, anxious, or insert negative emotion because it'll disrupt that emotional processing in your brain and help you break down the uh, stress chemicals in your body. So brain tool number three, physical stress, distract mental stress. And last but not least, brain tool number four, mindfulness meditation. We've spoken about this ad nauseum on this podcast, as you know, clearly evangelists for it, but it is mental training. If we do physical training, we need to do some mental training as well. And this is all about focusing on the present, sometimes and normally on your breath, but use those apps of Headspace, of waking up with Sam Harris and so on, all those different apps that will allow you to train it on a consistent basis. Do it before you go to sleep so you get a really, really good night's sleep. Oh, and go listen to our episode on sleep if you want to find other ways to get a really good night's sleep. Strong episode. Uh, lots to cover. If we don't say so ourselves. 80, Hell yeah. 80-20 for the week. pat on the back. Well, I'm going to let you take the 80-20 for the week to start because I'm, I'm feeling I'm in a giving mood. All right, let's do that. So my 80-20 for the week, Preto principle, is emotional regulation is about awareness first and foremost. Or piggybacking. Did we organize this prior? Once you have awareness, it is a skill that you can practice. And practicing is all about rewiring your brain and leveraging that great, great thing we call neuroplasticity. Self-directed neuroplasticity. Oh, that's all, all we've got for you this week. Um, and what a what an episode it's been. Loved sharing this. If you liked uh, what we shared today, if you found it useful, uh, maybe share this with your friends. I mean, you don't have to, but you could always grab a bit of a screenshot. Please. Put it up on your... Pretty please, pretty please. <laughs> Put it up on your Instagram stories uh, with a comment. That's always really, really appreciated. Or just send a link to, to someone who could get some value out of it too because we all need some emotional regulation tools in our life. Or if you want to follow along, go jump on LinkedIn. We've got a brain tools LinkedIn. We post some updates there and it's a really easy way to follow what we're up to uh, and get more information there. I love it. Samuel, we can wrap this bad boy up. What a pleasure as we head to Christmas. And next episode was going to be on emotion management and empathy, basically. Mm. How do you actually translate your emotional regulation from the self into two different settings of the workplace and your personal life? It's all about other people in the next episode, which I'm pumped for. Super pumped for it. And that's, uh, that's all for me for this week. See you later. Take it easy. See you guys.